0: It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Innovation expert Alec Ross looks at the world today and sees a society out of balance. Some corporations have as much power as nations, he says. Governments have failed to keep up with the regulation, and workers have lost staggering amounts of wealth and agency.
1: The basis for the social contract is really very much the same that it was almost 200 years ago, and this then has created this disequilibrium.
0: In his book, The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future, Ross takes a look at how we got here and how people are being impacted by the societal evolution. And he makes the case for writing a new social contract that restores trust and balance and ensures a functional future. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Society of Fellows. The Society of Fellows is a national community of leaders who sustain and support the Aspen Institute. To learn about SOF, go to aspeninstitute.org forward slash SOF. In today's talk, Stephanie Mehta, the editor in chief of Fast Company Magazine, interviews Ross about what went wrong and how we get back to equilibrium. Here's Mehta.
2: I wanna start with how we got here, Alec, because, you know, the whole premise of this book is looking at how we can potentially rebalance this di- disequilibrium that you write about in the relationship between business, government, and citizens. And you call for a new social contract. Before we get to that, how did, how did we get to a point where, it, based on the book, it seems like business really has an outsized role in that balance
1: sure thank you stephanie and and thank you gillian and thank you aspen institute uh, for hosting us this evening Uh, to your question the sort of disequilibrium that all of us feel that all of us sense in one way or another is really in in large part uh, a byproduct of the evolution of our economy of the upward march of technology and science and in many respects is it's something that's happened over the course of history though it happens only once every 200 or so years and i'll just i'll give one example um the the social contract that which sort of defines the relationship between business government and citizens is something that's existed since humankind has been on two feet and figured out that it was it would be a better idea if we all sort of stuck together uh, rather than trying to make it on our own in a world of saber-toothed Tigers you know the idea that by giving up certain of our rights and by defining the rights and responsibilities we have between each other within a sort of collective we can all do better is something that's always been at sort of the core of humanity and this social contract is both written and unwritten it is something that evolves with time but every now and then there are moments of sort of dramatic transition and i'll give just one example as a way that i hope illuminates our our current moment a little bit for me this period feels this period the 2020s feels very much like a period called the engels pause which was a period from about 1800 to 1840 when through much of Europe, uh, the base of the economy went from being dominantly agricultural to being dominantly industrial. And the, the social contract as it existed during the agricultural age wasn't written through through these first 40 years of industrialization, this was sort of the industrialization of the Charles Dickens novels. You know, 11-year-olds losing their, their hands in factories, people working six days a week, 14 hours a day, and in, in smog-filled skies in the, in the cities. Uh, and so an enormous amount of wealth was created, but the, the, well-being, the wealth and the well-being accrued to a very small number of people. And what were the byproducts of this? the largest wave of revolutions in Europe's history took place in the 1840s. Uh, the growth of ideological movements like Marxism, the Communist Manifesto was written in 1848. But ultimately as technology and as industrialization was changing the way that, the, was changing the way that we worked and changed the base of the economy, as we innovated technologically, we also innovated within our public policy. And so we, we said, okay, sure you can work in that factory, but we're gonna create this thing for the first time called a child labor law. So you have to be 16 or 18 before you go into the factory. And you know what, you can work in that factory, but you, we're also gonna create this thing called a minimum wage. And oh, by the way, the con- we're gonna create a new concept. It was actually an idea of the unions in the mid 19th century called a weekend. Before, during the agricultural age, uh, the one day off you would get is Sunday, you know, the, the day of our Lord. And the number of, of work hours would be the number of hours of sun. So anywhere from, you know, nine to 14 hours a day. But they said, you know what, we're gonna have a weekend, we're gonna have a 40 hour work week, and we're gonna have a minimum wage. They also had other innovations, the concept of free public education, so that we could benefit from the spoils of industrialization. And so all of these things that were really edgy uh, radical ideas, a minimum wage, child labor laws, a pension, public education, all of these really took root in a fairly short period of time in the mid 19th century and it, they made industrialization work. Now though, we're in the same way in which we were transitioning then from an agricultural based economy to industrial economy, now the economy's transitioning again. From a dominantly industrial-based economy into a technology-rich, knowledge-based economy. But we haven't really rewritten our social contract. And so, Stephanie, for your and my kids, like there's no way that they're gonna have one employer for 30 years and at the end of that get a pension. You know, the basis for public education, you know, the idea was that at age 18, the elites could go to university and the non-elites would go to work in a port factory, mine, or mill. Now we need lifelong learners, but our concept of education is still rooted in the norms of the early, ni- of the early 19th century. Um, so we've, we've what's interesting is the basis for the social contract is really very much the same that it was almost 200 years ago, and this then has created this disequilibrium. And I'll just make sort of two last points on this as it relates to, and I promise not all my answers will be this long. Um, but two last points on this is the way that it sort of manifests itself economically. Um, if we go back to when you and I were both at Northwestern University, if we go back to my sophomore year, I think that was your...
2: That might have been my senior year.
1: Your junior year. <laughs> well, well, yeah. I don't think I was at Northwestern at that time, no, Alex. We i in high school. No, we were about the same age. <laughs> no, so 30, 30, years ago, 30 years ago, if the rate of inequality, if, if, 30 years ago, um, if you go from that period to the present day, the amount of wealth accumulation among the 1% has gone up 21 trillion dollars, while the bottom 50% has gone down 900 billion dollars and the middle class has stagnated. And if you go back 40 years, back to when I was in third grade, uh, if the rate of inequality had remained the same from the time that I was in third grade to present, if it, just, if it had just stayed the same, it would mean that $50 trillion would go to, to workers earning at 90%, which is pretty high, 90% or below, which is an extra $1,100 per worker per month. And so that kind of disequilibrium, fostered in part by our economics and by a social contract that's out of date, is what's, I believe, created the conditions for the sort of rage that is being felt so broadly right now.
2: Uh, There's a ton of follow-up questions I wanna ask, but I was struck when you were going through that list of social and contractual changes that took place to enable the Industrial Revolution. You kept saying, we created the weekend. We created the policies that prevented child labor. I don't feel like there's a we right now. I feel like the citizen or the worker, more recently we've seen workers start to exert their authority, but we've gone through a period of 30 years where workers have really not exerted their power and, and that may be contributing to the disequilibrium.
1: I, I think you're absolutely right. So what's interesting is the ideas for, the idea of a pension or free public education or a minimum wage, these ideas came from academia, they came from intellectuals, they came from, from workers' movements, they came from sort of all quarters. And eventually, the way that those ideas that started in sort of the intellectual periphery became law was in some was it it really was in in many respects a contract. It was ideas from whether it was a union or an academic. It went through the process of becoming institutionalized in a government and then across a society. I mean, so Otto von Bismarck, who was this you know, who was a, a german a german general was really the father of continental europe's uh, social contract because he wanted industrialization to work and exerted good old-fashioned leadership to ensure that these ideas none of which were his own but took root to make industrialization work lord asquith you know a very patrician prime minister in in england helped a lot of these a lot of these ideas become law in England. So it is, there is a we that is necessary for any of this to lift people. It can't be done in in a way that is always adversarial. Otherwise you get the revolutions that defined the 1840s or new ideological movements like Marxism that seek to completely upend the way that the, the economy was structured entirely.
2: And I know you have a chapter in the book that looks at the way that corporations use tax havens to avoid paying taxes. But I've got to ask, as you were talking about that wealth creation, there's a lot of billionaires who are avoiding paying their taxes. I mean, how do we, what is the conversation like when you have an Elon Musk basically saying, you know, I, 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 there, there's a system for me and then there's a system for the rest of the, the world?
1: Sure. So I should do a disclosure at this point, which is I'm a capitalist and i actually don't believe that every billionaire is a policy failure. You know, those are not my politics. That's not my ideology. I'm a i'm a partner in a venture capital fund with over a billion dollars of assets under management. You know, i i believe that capitalism is actually the economic system that enables the greatest increase in in well-being. But capitalism isn't all one thing. You know, the the you know cat there's a difference between stakeholder capitalism and shareholder capitalism and the the thing that has i think damaged our capitalism over the last 30 years is a byproduct of globalization and i should do a disclaimer i should do a disclosure here to say i think globalization isn't an, produces an overwhelmingly good i am one of those people who is not you know, clenching my fist up talking about the evils of globalization. I don't believe that to be true. I believe it's more so than anything else in the history of humanity, that which has lifted people up and out of poverty and extended our, and extended health and well-being. You know, the, the year I was born, the average life expectancy was 58. Today it's 72. That is a function of globalization. But, but one of the negative byproducts of globalization is that you are able to, to sort of individualize your social contract. So you can choose the, the environmental and labor laws of China, the capital markets of the United States, the research institutions of Europe in the United States, and the tax havens of Caribbean islands. And when you do this, what you are basically doing is you are distorting you are, you are distorting capitalism in a way that creates really negative byproducts. And so what these, what these folks are doing is all legal, and you know, by and large, there's a difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion. And a lot of what I write about in the book are things that are technically, it's all legal. But many of my, my argument is that it shouldn't be legal. And instead of just saying we need to kill the billionaires, or you know we need to, we need to burn them all at the stake. What we actually need to do is we need to have things like a global minimum tax so that, you know, corporations are paying fair taxes regardless of where they're incorporated. We need to actually change the laws rather than ball our fists up and talk about the indignity of some of these laws which they are optimizing for.
2: So what is the if we don't fix the disequilibrium disequilibrium What are the consequences? What's gonna
1: happen? So, I mean, there are precedents in history, um, and I think we're beginning to see it now. So the 40 years, again, think of 1800 to 1840, when industrialization was taking root, but we had not yet rewritten the social contract. Revolution swept all over Europe. And we're beginning to see those sparks now. We saw it with Gilets Jean, with the Yellow Vest Movement, in France, we saw it with the Five Stars Movement in Italy. We saw it with Brexit uh, in the UK. We're seeing it now in the United States. It's interesting in the United States, I think, the way that it manifests. The rage, interestingly, um, whether it's from the left or the right, I believe it comes from very similar places. You know, I grew up in the coal-filled hills of West Virginia, um, and the politics of West Virginia have changed dramatically over the course of my life. And when I go home and visit my parents in West Virginia, the rage is palpable. Um, and it has, my home state now is has truly become radicalized. Um, and what's interesting too, though, is the same economic conditions that have radicalized in many respects my native West Virginia are also increasingly radicalizing a, a younger generation, not in West Virginia, but where they draw opposite political conclusions. So what we're seeing is both on the left and on the right, we're seeing views that would have been once very far at the periphery, growing larger and growing angrier. Um, and one of the things I'll say in this book is there are, there are actually a couple words that are banned in the book, words that I don't use. Obama, Trump, Clinton, Biden, none of those words appear in the book. Because I actually think that you know as soon as we attach names to some of these dynamics, smart conversation smart people become stupid. Um, and I'm guilty of that myself. An elevated conversation, suddenly you're you're in the mud. And part of and part of what I'm trying to help people see is that whether you're in West Virginia and you are suddenly part of an increasingly angry and raging right, or you're in West where I now in West Baltimore and you're part of an increasingly angry and raging left. Much of what is created that rage is coming from very similar places, even if they're coming to different conclusions. but the overall rage um, I think is unfortunately it's growing in the United States, and some of what we begin to see will grow larger, increase and increasingly mainstream
2: and so how do we harness the power of people who are feeling disenfranchised to help them become part of the social contract. Because I think what, what we've been sort of dancing around is the fact that, as you said, people are, are balling up their fists and they're angry, but they don't necessarily feel like they have the power to do anything about it.
1: Right, and, and you know, the feeling of the lack of agency, the feeling of the lack of helplessness is oftentimes what will put people on the street. When you don't believe in a democratic process, um, then people will seek to draw to produce change in other ways. And th- there's a there's an interesting study I cite in the book um, produced by Sasha Munk and another p- a political scientist that actually looks at the views of democracy among millennials and younger. and it's fairly shocking um, the degree to which young Americans don't believe in the virtue and value of democracy. Um, I mean that's one I'm Gen X and everybody our generation and older, I think, you know, one thing regardless of where you land politically, we largely agree in is in the virtue and value of democracy. But a lot of young people who did not grow up having been witness to the conflict between Soviet sponsored communism and American sponsored democratic capitalism and don't have that sort of historic basis for comparison are actually now rejecting both our capitalism and our democracy. And it's it's really interesting now to see not just the political divides, but the generational divides along these lines. And so agency, feeling like you can participate in our democratic processes um, and draw something out of that is critical. Uh, now how to make people feel meaningfully engaged to democratic processes, you know, I ran tech and media policy for Barack Obama's first presidential campaign where part of my job was to do that and we were very good at that. 12, 13 years have passed since, have, have since passed and I now actually feel very disconnected from knowing how to do that. I'm just being very honest, I'll give you lots of, I'll give you detailed answers to those things that I have detailed answers to, but I actually don't know how to make this young generation feel better connected to our democratic processes.
2: It's a little depressing.
1: I'm an optimist, but this, is, but this is this is I, I, what I'll simply say is I lack the skills and insight at this moment to figure out what the triggers are for that generation to engage um, productively.
2: I don't know how we can uh, enter this next part of the conversation without mentioning some of the band names in in your book. But You're I'm welcome. I, to. We'll, we'll try. Um, but I, I'd love your take on the infrastructure bill, and whether or not you think that's a successful effort to rewrite the social contract.
1: Sure, so I I actually don't think it's a successful effort to rewrite the social contract, because I would make a distinction between an investment in roads, water, broadband, energy systems, all of which are important, and something reorienting the systems of governance so what that what the infrastructure bill is is its governance and it's good i would have voted for it it's you know thumbs up but it doesn't fundamentally reorder social and economic systems in the country so i actually don't think that you know if we're if we are three four five six years down the road when we are able to to evaluate the effect of the infrastructure bill, will evaluate the, infras- the, the effectiveness of the infrastructure bill based on how much more clean energy are we producing, how much, how much more efficient and effective are our transportation systems, um, as opposed to did this reorient the relationship between state capital and labor? I don't think it does that.
2: Do you think it had the potential to? I mean, there were a lot of things that fell out of that bill. I'm thinking particularly this is a, a topic we write about a lot at Fast Company around um, childcare mm-hmm. and and issues around you know um, enhancing um, you know services for children.
1: Yeah, so I do think that, I think all of the the investments in the of a of a social dimension would have gone more toward. Uh, rewriting the social contract, reorienting again the relationship between the governing and the governed and the private sector. And what's interesting to me, I should say something at this point about the role of big business in all of this. One of the interesting protagonists in all of this are the CEOs of a lot of America's biggest business. Um, You know, they oftentimes we put black hats on a lot of them, but it's interesting actually to hear their perspectives on a lot of this. Um, Doug McMillan, the CEO of, of of Walmart, actually went to. I tell the story of his going to Congress and testifying before Congress, saying, "You all need to raise the federal minimum wage." Um, the minimum wa- federal minimum wage, hasn't been raised since two thousand eight. And if that seems like an odd contradiction, why would Walmart be calling for an increase in the federal minimum wage? And the question was put to him. They were like, "Excuse me, sir, aren't you one of the you know the country's largest employers of?" relatively low wage employers. And what he said was, When you don't do your work, I'm put in in the position of actually having to govern. And my problem is that I am in the I am in the business of maximizing shareholder value. And if I raise wages and Lowe's and Costco and others don't, I'm going to lose an enormous amount of My stock price is going to go down and I'm going to be decreasingly competitive. And so what's interesting is when government doesn't govern, we actually put the private sector in the role of having to govern. You know, when you don't raise your federal minimum wage for 13 years, the government doesn't set the minimum wage. Amazon, Walmart and Costco do. Um, When you don't pass environmental regulation, then the environmental standards set by walmart in its supply chain are far more consequential than anything done in government so what's interesting right now is actually the role of business as a protagonist in all of this which is different than any prior periods in history
2: But what are the negative consequences of that? I mean, we've given examples that are on the sides of angels, right? Raising the minimum wage. We've seen a lot of companies. You know, Apple is a a great example of a company that's been really proactive on on environment. But when we seed responsibility for governing to business and it's not necessarily in the best interests of society, things can go terribly wrong, I would imagine.
1: No, it's not their job. It's it's not their job and it's not necessarily their aptitudes either. and so when gov- when when government doesn't govern and it's left to the CEOs of Amazon and Walmart effect- to set to set, you know, what our workplace safety standards are going to be, what the minimum wage is going to be, you're, you're going to get something that is neither a process of democratic consent nor necessarily optimized for workers. Um, No matter how big hearted the executive is, I mean, I sit on boards of directors of publicly traded companies and we want to we want to have happy workers that are, you know, are that are doing well. But at the end of the day, um, we can't think of ourselves as, you know, the parents of or the the mayor of of the city where we're headquartered. And so there is a role for government, particularly to do those things that um, are asynchronous asynchronous with market forces. You know, there are some things things that simply aren't good for markets, but which are good for the rest of the world, which need to be done, particularly, for example, in areas like climate and environment. We simply cannot outsource a climate and environment agenda to the private sector because the simple, the very simple fact of the matter is that they are, that, that the private sector, big business, is governed by incentives. And until the incentives, um, in a very real sense, in a balance sheet sense, are oriented toward investing in, say, buying clean, sustainable forms of energy, it's very rare that they're going to do so. There will be exceptions. Those exceptions will get lots of positive attention. But ultimately, government has to put a thumb on the scale to change the incentives in markets.
2: And how do you see government, again, coming back to the, the, the equilibrium question, exerting itself in an environment where right now it seems like it's very hard for, gov- two things, government has had a hard time getting things done, and the other thing is that, for better or for worse, if you look at all the surveys, citizens trust businesses more than they trust government.
1: No, that's true. I mean, one thing I will say is that this is something that's particularly true in the United States that isn't universally true right now. And that's something we have to be conscious of. And and one thing in this book, one of the things that I try to do is give examples of what's happening around the world from which we can draw both information and inspiration. I mean, look, right now, if there were a, if there were a, a resolution on the Senate floor that said, be it resolved, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, it would probably be a 50-50 vote, right? <laughs> I mean, this is how divided we are right now. Um, so yes. The, in the absence of being able to have bipartisan consensus around much of anything right now, the the drivers of any changes to our social contract um, are going to come from business. What I will say though is that we can look at some really positive examples from abroad for how to do this. You know, a lot of what I point to are are examples of some of what's happening in Central and Northern Europe right now. So when we you know we talk about changing our, our consumption and our business practices toward, for example, more responsible climate behavior. Um, we talk about it like it's a hypothetical based on a theoretical, based on a maybe, um, in terms of whether it can happen or not. But if you look at Northern Europe, they're already doing it. Um, you know, they have based, They've created policies that have reoriented all of the market incentives towards sustain toward more sustainable forms of production and consumption of of energy and they're all you know they are not toiling in poverty because of it Uh, and they're and and you know they are now much more responsible environmental actors for it and so i do think that there are a lot of very positive examples of what we can look to abroad from climate environment, to labor laws, to tax policy, to other things, they can and should inform some of what we're doing in the United States.
2: One of the things that has been really interesting when we talk about the role of government and you you alluded to the, the young people and their lack of belief in democracy, which by extension means a lack of faith in government, you, you wrote a piece for Fast Company not too long ago where you talked about how we've moved away from a cold war to what you deemed a code war. That you know, the, the battle is now being fought on a technological and digital battlefield rather than you know, a traditional battlefield. I'm curious to get a sense of how you think we can get young people to consider careers in government and careers in you know, the, the tech part of defense.
1: Sure. So one, I mean, one very concrete answer to this is: I actually think we need a new service academy. You know, so we had a, we, you know, we had the West Point um, and Naval Academy, and then with, you know, the, with um, the introduction of of aeronautics in warfare, we created an, an Air Force Academy. I think we should have a cyber academy. Um, you know, I think, and because if you think about it, the people who the the really great tech warriors, the really great coders, they're not gonna go to the Naval Academy. They're not gonna go to West Point. Um, These are, they they are, they're folks who are built very differently and wired very differently, but we need them a lot more than we need people running around with M16s right now. Um, So I actually think we should build an entirely new service academy to bring publicly spirited, technology-savvy young people, into public service. And if you think, for example, like going back to the service academies, they aren't just teaching people in those academies how to fight. They're teaching leadership. They are, you know, it's actually, it's a fairly deep education. And out of which you've got young people who have, frankly, whether they stay in government or not for their entire lives, a lifelong uh, commitment to their country. Those are the kinds of people who I would like to see. Um, I would love to see people with, Strong backgrounds in technology and science, with a lifelong commitment to country, and so in the same, you know, these are ideas that, you know, past leaders have had, um, but we don't seem to be coming up with some of these new ideas to address, you know, present day challenges. Um, So that's that's just one very concrete idea. Um, A second concrete idea is, I actually think that we need to. Um, we actually need to look at how we compensate people in government um, you know if you it's it's interesting uh, we compensate people in government very 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 poorly and you know it's it's I can't tell you how many ma- I worked at the State Department um, for four for four of the years that I worked for President Obama and I you know came out of that with you know a little platoon of mentees of young foreign service officers, of young people working at the Pentagon or at the CIA, and they get to a certain point in their lives, you know when they're in their mid30s, when they start having kids, and they can go from making 90 or hundred thousand dollars a year to three or four hundred thousand dollars a year overnight. and it's very hard to make the argument to them, to just stay in forever. And so part of what I think we need to do is we need to not pay people making $90,000 a year, $400,000 a year, but I do think we have to, we have to do the things to make lifelong servicing in in government um, better remunerated, better appreciated and more honored. You know, I, I think again, back to, you know, going back to our Cold War context, through the Cold War, across the West, if you graduated, um, from a top university going into government was seen as very prestigious you know if you had an economics degree from a top university going to work at the Treasury Department or the Fed was viewed as something outstanding going into the Foreign Service or going into the CIA or you know if you graduated from Oxford or Cambridge going into, uh, going into the U- into the UK government was viewed as very prestigious then after the Cold War we really lost that. And it's now viewed as if you go into government, um, unless you're a presidential appointee, like unless you're going in at at a senior level or for a very brief time as a very young person, it's viewed as not particularly impressive. And I think we are suffering for the diminished human capital that we have in government right now. It's not that we don't have good people in government, it's that we have too few and we retain them for too short a period of time.
2: You know, another topic that I wanted to talk with you about as it pertains to young people is the the whole issue around sustainability. Because I do, you know, even though there are big differences about how young people view government, there does seem to be a consensus across your sort of political views that among young people that that, that they care deeply about the environment. And I wonder if you think, I'm curious about two topics. One is, you know, the pressure that a new generation of investors might be able to apply to corporations when it comes to what's conventionally known as ESG. But also, you know, if this is a rallying cry around which we might get young people to actually care as citizens again.
1: Well, first of all, I certainly hope so. Um, And I do, but I do believe, you know, the first part of your question about investors and executing, for example, against ESG goals, I'll go back to this thing. Incentives. We are all governed by incentives and Americans. There are 196 countries on planet Earth. We Americans, more so than any of the other 195 countries on planet Earth, we are more governed by incentives than anybody else, whether it's for power, for love, for money, whatever it is, we are highly individualistic and highly driven by incentives. And so what I hope that this next generation will do is reorient our incentives so that we are investing massively in the forms of energy that will enable us to have a more sustainable future. And then in terms of the investor class, I mean, this is interesting. Money talks in this country. And right now we've seen a couple little ideas at the edges, you know, which, you know, uh, you know, a guy I know got a seat on the Exxon mobil board because of a uh, you know, because of um uh because of sort of an activist because of a, an an activist um shareholder action, but that's an exception. That's one person on one board. You know, that's not really reorienting systems yet. But I do think that if large investors, um if the if if serious asset managers really reorient their capital strategies toward divestment from certain things and investment in others, then it'll change behaviors. Um I'll be honest, you know, and I apologize to any of you who work at BlackRock or, you know, a few of these other places, but yeah, I've been a little disappointed, frankly, in some of the um announcements with large large dollar numbers behind them about, you know, this is our green fund or this is our sustainability fund. But when you actually look in the portfolio, it's apple google it's people it's companies that get high marks um, for environmental practices but are not actually environmental actors so unfortunately i haven't yet seen i've seen i've seen the investment community take baby steps in this direction but i have not seen them take actions yet in a way that really changes incentives what did you make of the
2: statement of purpose from the business roundtable from a couple of years ago? You know you're very critical of shareholder capitalism in the book. you you advocate for stakeholder capitalism. and that that statement of purpose essentially said, you know the purpose of a corporation is not just to serve the shareholder, but to serve this this broader constituency. Um, you know you what what is your take on on whether that has been effective? and you know two years on, is there time for a report card?
1: Yeah, so I would say first of all, I think that the the Business Roundtable, and for those of you who don't know it, it's an organization of I think 100 180 some of of the largest companies in the United States. And what they did, just by way of explanation, is they, you know, the the vast majority of them st- signed on to a statement that effectively said, you know what we need to do better um, as companies. And no, we should not all just be in the business of maximizing shareholder value. We also need to be mindful of a broader set of stakeholders uh, in our work, including our employees, the surrounding community, the environment, and other such things. And it was notable in part because the Business Roundtable was created decades earlier at a position when when the power of business in Washington was actually comparatively much less than it is now. It was actually in many respects born out of you know, the Milton Friedman push toward shareholder capitalism. So I thought it was a very powerful and important recognition by these business leaders. Two years on, how are they doing? What I would say is we can credit them for recognition of the problem, taking baby steps and taking baby steps toward the solution. Um, But part of what I think they need and you know, I'm if you had any of those CEOs here what they would tell you is They need in the same way in which, you know, we've there's an entire industry built around um, Assessing the financial health of a company, you know balance sheet metrics, you know Generally accepted accounting practices and other such things. We need to actually to have some standards in this world we need to have some we need to have some generally accepted ESG practices that are measurable, that are transparent. Because absent that, it's overwhelmingly PR. It's overwhelmingly kumbaya. So all of these folks who are the CEOs of these organizations, you know, they're driven by data. They're driven by, all right, if I make this input, what is the output? And if the output is fuzzy or imprecise, they're gonna push away from it. That's everything they've been trained to do and, and I don't blame them for it.
2: And, and a lot of it comes back to what you said earlier around the investors not necessarily you know, making a lot of statements around wanting to be green, but I also heard in the wake of the signing of the statement of purpose, you know, there are a lot of shareholders who weren't really thrilled about it. They said, no, I, I want my shareholder primacy. I would like to be first in line.
1: Right and you know look for if if you if your if the meaning of life for you is you wake up you turn on your Bloomberg terminal and the quality of your day and your quality of life is is did the numbers go up or down over the course of a given day on your Bloomberg terminal after you turn it off like no then in that world shareholder primacy is going to serve you better than um, a stake uh, than a model of stakeholder capitalism. So you know I, the data that I gave earlier. You know again, over the last over the last thirty years, um, the wealthiest one percent has grown twenty one trillion dollars richer, uh, while the bottom fifty percent has grown nine hundred billion dollars poor, and the rest is stagnated. If you're in that one percent and you've grown twenty one trillion dollars richer, you don't necessarily want to change anything. I mean, and again, I'll be I will be. I, I will be completely transparent with all of you. I've gone from working on a beer truck and being a midnight janitor in West Virginia to guess what, I'm now in the 1%. And this last year of pandemic has been the best year ever financially for my family. And so I see with the two eye, you know, with one eye, it's the, the kid who worked as a janitor and on a beer truck in West Virginia and understanding the perspective from that world. And I now see it living and working in the 1% where it's sort of heads, I win, tails, you lose. And so in this world of the 1% where we, I'll say we, are driving all of the economic and social policies, the questions are what are those things that we can do to ensure a broader prosperity for a larger number of people? And a lot of that, again, I would say is rooted rooted in incentives.
2: So what does equilibrium look like in your mind, Alec? And it- could either be uh, paint a picture of of what it could look like in the us or maybe give one of your examples from from abroad but you know i think we've lived in this period of disequilibrium for so long that some of us have forgotten what it really looks like when all three legs of the stool are even
1: well we had 30 years of it um by and large after world war ii where you know the the what is the american equilibrium is the american dream and when people say what is the american dream here's how i define the american dream Work hard and play by the rules, and every successive generation will be better off than the last. That, to me, is the American dream. And that has largely been what has defined America, you know, since our birth. Work hard, play by the rules, and every successive generation is a little bit better off than the last. And, wh- and that is sort of what's been frozen over the last 30 years. And if you think about what does equilibrium look like, you know, I would go to the period after World War II where America for several decades enjoyed its period of greatest growth, where you know, we had enormous numbers of people go from poverty to the working class, from the working class to the middle class, from the middle class to the upper middle class, and from the upper middle class into wealth, um, where, entire, where instead of the kind of data that I shared with you earlier, into an entire country by and large increased in wealth and well-being and so i think that equilibrium today looks like that for all americans the exception in the post-world war ii period is that that was over that upward economic and social mobility was overwhelmingly white so the the twist the twist in the 2020s and beyond is that it is similar it is It is broad, but increasingly inclusive.
2: You said at one point you consider yourself an optimist. Mm -hmm. So can we get there? And what can everybody in this room do to help achieve that goal of of successive generations growing in wealth, growing in prosperity, growing in opportunity?
1: Thank you for that question. So first of all, despite the title, The Raging 2020s, and despite this very tough subject material this book is actually an optimistic book it is and to the question of is the future going to look more like mad max or more like star trek <laughs> i believe that, that 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 question is still entirely up to us it's still in our hands i do take uh, a a more i do take an optimistic view that we can get out of this um, but we can't just. But we can't be passive. We can't be passive about it. So what's interesting is, if we go back to again, what I think is the, you know, the two precedents for this. Let's talk about the 1840s and the 1930s. In the 1840s, amidst revolution, and amidst the growth and amidst, and amidst the rise of things like Marxism, ultimately good governance prevailed and industrialization was made to work for a larger number of people. If you think about the 1920s and the end of the 1920s and the economic collapse that took place at the econo- at, at, at the end of the 1920s, there was an interesting moment of transition there where there were similar economic circumstances in say Italy, Germany, and the United States, but we took different paths, Italy, tilted toward fascism. Germany tilted toward Nazism, and the United States embraced the New Deal. My point now about the 2020s is that we all still have those kinds of choices, but we can't take for granted which path the United States will take. We We have to exert ourselves in our democracy. We have to exert ourselves as business leaders, as investors, as I'm trying to do. Um, and otherwise, we could go. What I think we've learned somewhat difficultly uh, over the last couple of years in the United States is that we are not immune from some of the rage that we would have typically associated with what's taking place across oceans elsewhere. We now see that these kinds of things can happen here. And in the same way in which Adolf Hitler was democratically elected, uh, Benito Mussolini was democratically elected uh, in the United States, and and don't, again, don't take this to be in the least bit partisan or anything like that, it's just, my point here is it is our choice whether whether we run in one direction with our rage or if we make more productive productive and positive uses of it what i reflect on is what can we learn from other states and societies that are doing a much better job of this than we are Um, you know we as americans we are you know we sometimes forget we were born with one mouth and two ears we sometimes invert the ratio right um but i do think that I think that we can look for inspiration i think to some other countries that are doing a better job of this than us right now interestingly enough
2: alec ross thank you so much this was wonderful thank you to the aspen institute
0: alec ross is a leading expert on innovation he teaches at the university of bologna business school and is a board partner at the venture capital firm amplo He served as senior advisor for innovation to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and worked on technology and media for President Obama's 2008 campaign. Stephanie Mehta has been editor-in-chief of Fast Company Magazine since 2018. Before that, she was an editor at Vanity Fair, Bloomberg, and Fortune, and worked as a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Society of Fellows and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.